Hello, and welcome to Within Normal Limits, COPIC's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant for COPIC, as well as a practicing internal medicine physician. Thank you for listening and helping us further COPIC's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. All right, so joining me on this episode of Within Normal Limits is Dr. Susan Scambotti. She's our medical director at Copic, as well as a colorectal surgeon. So, uh, Dr. Scambotti, thank you yet again for willing to be a guest on Within Normal Limits. Always my pleasure, Dr. Zacharias. So this is this is a topic which we have been asked about, it seems as if more and more frequently over the last few months, but perhaps I'm just more sensitive because I've been on the hotline. But the question is, you know, how do I terminate a patient from my practice? How do I end a physician-patient relationship? And it's a, it's a key issue that comes up frequently. And before we dive into it, I need to give a couple of disclaimers. Uh, this is a podcast discussion among two board-certified active physicians. These are not two attorneys who are acting on your legal behalf. So we're not your lawyers. We're not your law firm. We're not even lawyers. Uh, so this is not legal advice. Uh, this is doctors talking about what we understand or reasonable practices. If you have questions or concerns, please feel free to call Copic. And if you need legal advice, uh, get an attorney, because if you need your colon resected, Dr. Scambati is your woman. Uh, if you need a multi-day, long, painful internal, internal medicine workup, I'm your guy. But if you need legal advice, uh, we've got some excellent people to refer you to, and neither one of them are us. So, uh, Dr. Scambati, let's get, let's get started on this. And, and I'd like to start with uh, with a just a general case, and this is an amalgam of multiple calls I received when I was on hotline uh, earlier this month, which is, uh, you know, gosh, uh, Copic risk manager, I've got a patient who I want to fire. What do I need to do? And, and my first question is always, you know, what's the situation? Why do you want to fire them? I will say there are more nuances and more subtleties uh, than, than are possible to cover. But basically, uh, the key question is, why do you want to fire them? What's going on? And uh, the, the classic case is they've missed multiple appointments or they were rude to my staff or there's some kind of medication uh, non-compliance or some other behavior issue. And we'll, we'll talk about those in a little more detail. Uh, but first of all, um, let's actually read, because it's short, the medical board policy, and then we'll start talking about different situations because I promise Dr. Scambati has had at least as many of these phone calls as I have. So the policy is short, and it's from the medical board of, of the state of Colorado, and it says, it is the policy of the Colorado Medical Board that the proper discharge of a patient from a provider's practice includes the following elements, and there are four elements. They're bullet-pointed but not numbered, but with my great math skills, I counted four. Uh, number one, the discharge is done in writing via delivery that confirms receipt to the patient, such as certified mail or hand delivery. Number two, in the discharge letter, the provider agrees to provide 15 to 30 days 
of emergency coverage while the patient obtains a new provider. Number four, if possible, the provider provides referral information to the patient regarding possible new providers. And number four, uh, notification in the letter to the patient that the patient records will be sent to the new provider upon receipt of written authorization from the patient. Now, that's it. Those are the, the medical uh, guidelines. Um, I will say the, the one caveat that I believe holds true through this in many areas of, of conflict in medicine, and in life for that matter, is trying to communicate and working it out, if reasonable, uh, is, is best. Um, so, Dr. Scambati, that's a long introduction. Let's go through some of these uh, situations and uh, talk a little bit about um, what might come up and what you might do in these different scenarios. So one scenario would be, you know, a patient, uh, you want to see him for follow-up, you just did a bowel resection, and uh, they don't show up. Uh, what do you think? Would you fire that uh, patient, and why or why not? Not fire this patient in the post-operative period. It's a very risky undertaking to do that. There are late complications that you need to be available for. I would take all reasonable efforts at finding out why this patient hasn't come in, um, namely phone calls, written letter, even certified mail. If it gets to that point, I've even called the primary care doc um, of the patient to inquire where they are. Sometimes they go back to the patient, uh, to the primary care doc, um, because they're confused as to who's following them up. Um, or they may say, you may find out that they are in a different emergency room and no one communicated with you that they were admitted for a complication elsewhere. So it is really a bad time to fire someone or discharge them. Yeah, probably not ideal for somebody with a late post-op bleed to get a letter from you that you fired them from your practice for missing an appointment when they were in the ER getting an emergency laparotomy. Not ideal. Uh, hopefully that never happens to anybody, but it certainly is a risk. In the other area, there are a few others that we, we say you really should not fire a patient. Uh, the second one is pregnancy, especially the third trimester. So the, the current guidelines are A, be incredibly uh, judicious and thoughtful about that. Things occur, people miss appointments. Firing somebody in the first trimester uh, is risky. The second and third is incredibly risky and certainly something that would be advised against because of risk of abandonment. That is a patient that uh, you want to work very hard with if there is uh, a compelling reason for them to get a new uh, health care provider uh, to work with them on getting somebody to, to follow them up. I mean, sometimes uh, you could come up with a situation which just does not work for your office and they have to move on, but that is a person you do not want to uh, stop providing care for until you've made sure they've been handed off to somebody else who can take over their care and the patient understands that. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think that there's a lot to be said for um, if you must hand off a patient doing that transition smoothly and professionally uh, and you cannot be viewed as hiding it hiding anything or being um, emotionally uh, disgruntled by any of that at all yeah no important stuff and in my world 
the biggest thing we see are, are missed appointments. And again, uh, making sure that you understand why they're missing the appointments. If it's somebody is on your schedule and they simply just don't come and don't call your office and are uh, creating a burden for for your practice, that's a reasonable reason to fire somebody, but you need to make sure that they have the information about the appointment, that there's not some kind of a cognitive issue, a medication-induced issue, and so on. You know, essentially, don't rush to fire people uh, for noncompliance. Make sure you understand the situation well and doing the best you can to ensure uh, you understand uh, why they are why they are noncompliant. The next area uh, that comes up uh, quite often is is nonpayment. Now, I, as part of my practice, you know, I I see patients for money. That's how I make a living. I, I bill for providing medical services. I love taking care of patients, uh, but I also uh, need to be paid for my services. And part of that sometimes involves uh, patients paying co-pays uh, or other aspects of their bills. So, uh, Sue, what do you think about firing somebody for uh, for non-payment of their of their bills? Well, it can be done, uh, and it has been done. However, in my world, in a surgical world, you really have to have a guarantee that they are recovered and stable before you do this because again you don't know what hardship uh, is underlying their non-payment um, and you really cannot discharge someone um, for a financial reason who still has an ongoing medical problem I think dialogue is important you know Let's work this out right now. I want you to get better. Then we can worry about that. Um, so post-operative period is not the time, particularly when a complication is involved. In your world, I think it's a little different um, in that, you know, they're coming in, let's say, for medication refills and cancel six of the appointments before they actually show up. Um, yes, that's a burden to any busy internist and you may have a dialogue with them and say this has to stop because you are really burdening the system here. Um, and if it doesn't, then I'm going to discharge you. So I, I don't think shooting from the hip and just saying discharge this patient is the way to go ever. A dialogue needs to be had. Um, and you may gain some perspective on what this person is, your patient's going through also and be able to help. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and uh, it's we can discuss the absurdity or the beauty of a system where people go financially insolvent because of healthcare issues, uh, but we certainly try hard not to fire somebody uh, for the uh, for the the gross error of not having enough money to pay an expensive medical bill. Uh, we try to get them set up with social services. Uh, we have patient advocates and others who can make sure they have, uh, you know, proper insurance. Maybe they would qualify for a plan that would uh, make their health care uh, less expensive for them. It may or may not involve our uh, our facility. You know, again, we have to uh, do two things at once. One is make our facility financially solvent, uh, but we certainly don't want to be punitive to patients. No. No, no thoughtful person wants to treat other humans that way in, in medicine. So uh, I think those are good points on the non-payment. Well, what about behavior? Now, this is 
this is gradations, and for those of you who don't know this, uh, Dr. Scambidi is a Just Culture certified champion, uh, so she is an expert in uh, how you deal with different levels of, of human behavior. And let's start with the most simple, and we'll work our, our ways up. Uh, so let's say a, a, a patient can't find a parking spot in, in your building, and they have to park across the street, and they had showed up uh, 10 minutes early, uh, and then, uh, you know, they walk in and they're, they're grumpy when they, when they pay their copay and maybe they're, you know, not, not cussing, not outright, uh, you know, don't violate massive, uh, social or societal norms. You forgot that their butt hurts also when they come see me. Yeah. So they're, yeah, you know, let's say they're a hemorrhoid patient of Dr. Scan bodies. And so the, the car ride over was less than a joyful event. <laughs> And they're not real excited about the exam. Uh, and they say something along the lines of, you know, you guys really need to get your offices act together. Uh, and, and what do you think about that 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 patient? Uh, you know, by the time you come to see them, they're usually calmed down. But they've, you know, cut a wide swath uh, in the practice coming in. How would you how would you handle that? I generally take care of their needs up front. Uh, and then I'll address it with them. I'll say, you know, I don't allow you to talk to my staff that way. My staff is an extension of myself. Um, I'm trying to help you, and they're trying to help you. And if you want to continue here, you're going to have to um, tone it down. Uh, I do acknowledge that they're probably uncomfortable uh, and nervous, but you really need to set boundaries it's somewhat like parenting yeah no those are those are good points and you're right if you can de-escalate the situation i can think of uh no time where that's not the the best possible approach but there's some situations so now we're going to switch to the other side you know swing the pendulum the other way where the behavior is not okay and i'm talking about someone who walks in and threatens the staff with, a, say, an ethnic slur, with a physical uh, threat, um, using uh, swear words, um, uh, sexual harassing, maybe not quite rising to the level of calling the police, but uh, you know, flagrantly inappropriate uh, behavior. Where do you where do you uh, put that in how you address it, and I'll, I'll tell you what we do in our world also. I address it immediately because it's one of those things that if you, you're promoting what you permit. So if you allow them to continue um, and belittling your staff um, and you know making these um, uh, comments, it undermines you and your reputation and your respect from your staff as well. So they are spoken to immediately at this point before they're even seen. And I say, I'm not, I, I can't see you if you're going to behave like this. Um, you can either make another appointment with my partner, or I have a pre-printed list of all of the colorectal surgeons in Denver that you may go see, and here you go. Um, so that the initial visit where nothing has happened is fine. If they come in after the fact that they are an established person with you, at least I have some form of a relationship to say, 
again, de-escalate. What is going on? Why are you behaving this way? Um, I can't have this in my practice, and I am going to terminate you if this continues. Furthermore, I would like you to apologize to my staff. So that, I think, it goes a long way with your staff, too, um, that you're not just, they're not the punching bag for people who don't feel well. Um, and I think that's important, too. So keep in mind, your staff has feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's someone who gets right up to towing the line. But let's talk about crossing the line. So if mm-hmm. in, in our office, crossing the line in, includes but is not limited to, you know, an overt sexual advance, an overt sexualization statement, uh, an ethnic slur, uh, anything uh, uh, demeaning somebody for innate characteristics uh, those are all we will terminate them from our practice. And then when it crosses to the next level, uh, which is law enforcement level, uh, that's any uh, any physical touching, overt sexual assault or attempted uh, or or theft. And and we call law enforcement immediately for for those. And I would assume your office probably has similar bright lines. Yes, we have a you know policy uh, whereas the Building security is called, um, and we all know how to do that uh, should the need arise. Yeah, so it goes from from uh, you know annoying to difficult to almost uh, calling law enforcement and firing, and then immediate firing and, and calling law enforcement. And the same thing, we have a all hands on deck uh, physical, uh, team, which fortunately we have to call rarely, but we definitely have, I mean, we call them every, uh, you know, a few times every year. And, uh, it might surprise you as, as burly as I am, I am not on that team. So, uh, it is other people even more burly than myself, uh, who come in and, and deescalate the, uh, deescalate the situation. So, Let's go back a little bit. We're going to talk about somebody who has, uh, say, I referred somebody to you for uh, a hemorrhoid follow-up, and you, you, you see them, or I'm sorry, a hemorrhoid consult. You see them once. You do an evaluation. You do some uh, nitroglycerin cream or diltiazem ointment or uh, some non-surgical things, and you want to see them back and in a few weeks and they schedule an appointment and they don't show up and they schedule again and they don't show up and they schedule again and they don't show up and then your staff calls them and they're rude. So probably somebody you're going to say that you're going to terminate this relationship. Uh, what are some of the keys about firing this person? Do you, do you want to have an in-depth discussion uh, in a letter, uh, explain all the different things they've done wrong or how would you, how would you go about handling this process of, of terminating somebody? Well, I find this um, is a an area I get a lot of calls on on the hotline, um, and people want to discharge, rightfully and justly so, uh, discharge their patient, and they write a letter to them, and they itemize all of their rude behavior, inappropriate comments, and non-payment of bill. That is the absolute wrong way to handle this. This needs to be handled non-emotionally in as few words as possible. 
You have made a decision to end the relationship. In fact, we have a template on our website, which I'll read to you because it's so short and sweet. And it's, dear patient, I've decided not to continue as your provider. Your local medical society may be able to assist you in finding another practitioner. I will remain available to you for provisional care for 30 days following the date of this letter. To ensure continuity of care, please try to transfer to a new care provider as quickly as possible and within this 30-day period. I will forward your medical record to your new practitioner upon receipt of a signed written authorization request to do so. I think this may actually be a little outdated because with the new information blocking rule, I'm not sure we need to have a written request in place any longer. What do you think about that? That's yeah. a that's a good point, and the answer is I don't actually know. We have to ask somebody smarter than me. Well, good. We'll bring that one up with the legal department. <laughs> but you'll notice, and that's it, period. That was the end of the letter, and there is nothing referencing their behaviors, your emotions, um, or their misconduct in there. Um they, uh, another way of looking at it is kind of saying when you end a relationship, we're breaking up. It's me, not you, and we're done, and there's no further discussion. You don't want to really give them any fuel to come back and say, you said that I behaved this way, and I find that very offensive. You just want to be done, and this is the cleanest way to do it and complies with the state um, guidelines for it. Yeah, I mean, the the best way to terminate a situation is not to propagate the situation. And the best way to not propagate the situation is say, the situation is over, I wish you well. And that's that. Uh, certainly, the other thing that's key about this, and, and in my practice, we're a multi-specialty group, so uh, you know, we have, goodness knows, 20, 25 different specialties represented, uh, and uh, having a standardized process uh, makes it clear that we're not separating or you know specially selecting you know patient you for any worse treatment or any better treatment than anybody else. Uh, you were fired because uh, if it comes down to it, because you are not a good fit, and uh, we wish you well, and uh, we certainly hope you have uh, you know, quality health care going forward and relationships that meet your expectations and needs. And that's it. There, there is no, uh, there's, there's no upside to say you were rude these three times because then all of a sudden you're going to get in a debate or a fight about were they really rude? Was it rude enough? Was the staff you know, looked at them cross-eyed first? Maybe they were smacking gum and it annoyed. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is the relationship doesn't work and you're going to move on. So I, I completely agree. The nondescript uh, standardized process is is the best way to go. Now there are uh, a question comes up a lot. Uh, if, at least I get this uh, in my group and also occasionally on hotline, which is yeah, I want to fire somebody for behaviors uh, or actions that I would that I have fired many patients. Well, hopefully not many, but several patients uh, over the years for. And this person's done these exact same things, and I want to terminate them for this, but uh, they're a member of a protected class or they have a disability or there's some reason that you think, gosh, can I still terminate somebody for this? And the answer is 
you can terminate people for behaviors, but you can't terminate anybody for being simply because they're a member of a protected class. So members of protected classes uh, have every single right that you or I have. You cannot fire somebody for their religion, for their race, uh, if they have a disability, their sexual orientation, their national origin. Uh, first of all, you're a horrible person if you do fire somebody for that, and I will go on record as saying that. Um, but secondly, uh, you, you can't do it legally anyway. Uh, however, there are people who are members of protected classes who are very unpleasant and, and need to be fired, and you can fire them for unpleasant behavior but not because of being in a protected class. So I think that's pretty straightforward. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Sue. Not really, but I'll take it a step further because this I'm sure you got a lot of calls regarding this. Is um, Do I have to see this patient who refuses to wear a mask? And um, it's along those lines as well. You have some rights. You have the right to be um, treated. As, is, as the physician, you have a right to be treated well. You have a right to be safe and, you know, and have – your integrity honored there. So if it goes against those, it doesn't matter what class you're in, protected or unprotected, they are, you know, violating the golden rule. And no, you don't have to see someone who refuses to wear a mask. Back when we had mask mandates, who knows, they may be coming again. It's up for debate. But, um, you know, we got a lot of calls on that. So don't forget, you have the right to be safe as well and feel um, protected uh, and confident in what you're doing. Yeah, no, ex- excellent point. And I want to make uh, one last point, uh, and then I'll see if you have anything to add on top of this. But this also comes up uh, when you have dismissed somebody from your practice and you hear they're going to go see somebody else who's a colorectal surgeon in town uh, somewhere else. You may feel like, ah, I should probably give them a call and give them a heads up that this per- we fired them because they were a real jerk. Uh, good idea or not a good idea? Uh, this is a very common scenario in my group um, in Denver because we actually are all in the EMR um, this together as well. So we have access to these records. Hopefully – um, there is no editorialization um, of the patient's um, behavior or emotional state of mind uh, kind of thing in the medical record. I do not think it is a good idea to call um, and uh, warn, shall we say, the next provider. I think that the uh, you let the providers make their own opinion. Uh, frankly, if I hear that uh, Dr. Zacharias doesn't want to see me anymore, and I'm hoping you will. The flag went right up for me, you know, and I hope it works in reverse. Dr. Scambody doesn't want to see me anymore. I'm hoping you will. Most providers would say, hmm, <laughs> that's fishy. Um, and I don't think it needs to be embellished um, with anything. And I think you damage your own reputation by this speaking poorly of someone else. They may have a fine relationship with another provider and it wasn't a good fit. That's all. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's, that's the key point. Um, it's neither your job nor appropriate uh, to create obstacles to this person and seeking further care. 
And so I completely agree, you know, don't call the new doctor to warn, you know, so-and-so was a real jerk to our staff. That is uh, A, not appropriate, and B, could potentially uh, be a violation of that of that individual's rights. So not recommended. The only place where I would uh, put in a disclaimer would be if you have true and legitimate concerns about the safety of someone else's staff because of prior statements or um, threatening behaviors, which would include future physicians, um, I think uh, legitimate concern for safety uh, is more important uh, than uh, any other issues. But outside of that, uh, allow them to continue on with the, the patient to continue on their lot with their lives. Um, you've uh, you've dismissed them from your practice and you have no further obligations and in fact should not interfere with anything further. You should facilitate their care like you would for anybody else. Exactly. Agree completely. All right. Well, this is a uh, a, a topic that's important and comes up. We probably. Uh, answered some questions. We probably opened up a few questions as well for people who practice. We remain available uh, at Copic for any of our insureds who have questions or concerns about this. We'll do our best. But again, uh, Dr. Scambody and I, uh, between the two of us over the course of our 50 plus, plus years of life, has spent a grand total of zero seconds in a law, law, uh, law school classroom. So this is not legal advice. This is the best uh, information we can give you from uh, medical practitioners. So, uh, Dr. Scambati, thank you for joining as a guest on this important discussion. You bet. Always a pleasure. Take care. Additional news on the COVID front, although uh, not uh, released in the last few weeks, but within the last few months, is good news around the power and the value of monoclonal antibodies. So, uh, rather than unproven or uh, magical thinking about certain kinds of medication interventions, we have uh, very positive and grown data to support the use of monoclonal antibodies uh, for treatment of outpatient COVID. And I just wanted to reemphasize that to our uh, practicing insured physicians to understand uh, some of the uh, emergency use authorization uh, categories of, of patients to consider uh, monoclonal antibodies. Do understand that this information is rapidly evolving. Uh, you can get the most up-to-date information on uh, the NIH website or on um, the uh, CDC website. But if you just do a, a Google search of uh, COVID monoclonal antibodies, NIH, it will come up with the treatment guidelines, give you more information on the data, uh, let you understand why there is an emergency use uh, authorization for these. But the, the, the reason to know about this is that there is potential, even though it's not FDA approved, under this emergency use authorization to at least have the conversation about the possibility of treatment uh, for patients who fall into the category as being candidates for the monoclonal antibodies. Uh, the background is that the monoclonal antibodies significantly reduce hospitalizations and death in uh, certain studied outpatient uh, populations. And so there are a number of uh, uh, conditions or factors 
that uh, place one into the higher-risk category um, that allows them uh, to be a potential candidate for monoclonal antibodies uh, to, be re to be referred on. And I'm just going to go through these as a reminder. Uh, first of all, to be a potential candidate, the individual must have a confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, they must be symptomatic with symptom onset of less than 10 days. Uh, the earlier in the course, the better. Uh, the symptoms should be mild to moderate, um, and if they're severe or require oxygenation, then certainly a hospital visit might be a reasonable referral. Uh, the data show that the sooner that monoclonal antibodies are administered after the patient has contracted or developed symptomatic COVID, uh, the more likely they are to be effective. Um, additionally, uh, this works for both vaccinated and unvaccinated uh, patients. So vaccination status does not impact uh, a patient's eligibility. And uh, these specific factors, uh, which are shown to increase the risk of, of deterioration and complicated uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections include uh, uh, age greater than 65, obesity with a BMI of greater than 30, uh, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, including hypertension, uh, chronic lung diseases such as moderate to severe asthma, COPD, ILD, CF, and pulmonary hypertension. Uh, there are additional factors which are not as strongly associated but are still uh, considered higher risk for progression and would be worth uh, having the discussion with patients if they do have any of these conditions, uh, the use of monoclonal antibodies. Um, one would be if one has an immunocompromising condition or is on immunosuppressive treatments. So your patients with rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease uh, who are on immunosuppressants would fall into this category. Uh, additionally, uh, chronic kidney disease uh, is a risk factor. Pregnancy, uh, that's a very important one. Uh, we do know that uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections in pregnancy are, are much higher risk um, for, uh, uh, for the fetus and, as, well as, for the, uh, as well as for the expected mother. Uh, patients with sickle cell disease, Individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders such as uh, cerebral palsy or uh, conditions that increase their complexity of uh, you know, medical needs such as metabolic syndromes and uh, general anomalies, as well as a uh, dependence on some kind of medically related technology such as a tracheostomy, uh, a gastrostomy. Um, those would also be considered <clears throat> increased risk factors. And those are additives. So the more risk factors, uh, again, the more likely there is to be a differential between um, individuals who get the monoclonal antibodies and, and uh, those who uh, do not. Understand that this is an emergency use authorization. So this is uncharted territory from a medical risk standpoint. Uh, these monoclonal antibodies are not fully FDA approved for any indication. And what we're suggesting is that if you have a patient who tests positive and has symptomatic disease uh, with any of these conditions, have that shared decision-making 
uh, discussion about the potential value of the monoclonal antibodies, the appropriate referral to treatment areas. And if they decide not to undergo uh, any further evaluation or referral for monoclonal antibodies, just documenting that, um, ideally, uh, you know, one has that good open conversation with the patients and you make it clear that that is not your best recommendation. So it's, you don't have to have them sign a form. This is not maybe rise to the level of, of a true informed refusal form, uh, but at least having that discussion that says, we know that your risk uh, will be lower if we have one of those conditions, you have uh, the COVID and you use the monoclonal antibodies than if you do not use the monoclonal antibodies. So that's important to know. Um, and again, the documentation of that conversation uh, is of value and of importance. And remember, this is rapidly evolving. Those are currently uh, the indications as, as best as I can outline them, as well as the uh, medical conditions that increase the risk for your patients. And again, remembering if they have these conditions and they test positive and are symptomatic, uh, having a discussion about the potential value for monoclonal antibodies and uh, the referral uh, for getting that therapy done as quickly as possible. Uh, thank you for your time. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Scambotti, a colorectal surgeon and medical director of Copic, thanking you for being a listener. We hope you find Within Normal Limits to be interesting and informative as we at Copic continue with new ways to bring you content relevant to our mission. Please email us at wnlpodcast at copic.com with show ideas or topics you would like to see addressed in future episodes of Within Normal Limits, Navigating Medical Risk. Also, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss any of our content. And while you're at it, please give us a rating if you enjoyed our show.